Well, what a week of contrasts we've had, and that's not just talking about the weather, where it sort of seems to oscillate from those beautiful clear days, like today hopefully might be heading to be, to those freezing cold overcast ones, which are really quite tough. And in the news, of course, all the ups and downs of election campaigns here and in the US. It seems uh, more downs than ups quite often, or outs, and a lot of it not terribly enlightening or inspiring. And then those worrying statistics on the COVID front with seemingly, it seems, reckless individuals disregarding warnings and jeopardising the health of others. Uh, while on the other hand, we still see that sterling and sacrificial uh, dedication by medical staff the world over. And inevitably, I'm not sure if you saw on the news last night, the stark contrast between Western medical facilities packed with ventilators sometimes, and then that camp full of refugees from war in Syria, which has but one ventilator for just so many thousands. And uh, our gospel reading today is set in the context of, of another shocking contrast, but uh, we actually very nearly miss it. And uh, thank you, I think all of you just put in a little bit of it there just so we could know. Because the reading actually starts when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there to a deserted place by himself. But what is this? What is this, in fact, is actually the really tawdry tale of King Herod's birthday banquet, which we know degenerates into a horrific murder scene with um, the head of John the Baptist paraded round on a platter. So what should have been a life-affirming event and celebration becomes a death-dealing, conniving sort of facade. And so there it is in the very same chapter, the way our our lectionary divides things up, unfortunately, we lose that contrast that Matthew is making uh, within that one chapter of what brings death and what brings life. But no wonder, of course, that Jesus withdrew when he heard this from uh, to grieve and no doubt to ponder uh, in his turn that cost of being a prophet and of speaking truth to power. And uh, as so often, Jesus just needed and chose to take time alone and to talk to his Father God, to draw strength and to feed his spirit so that then he might have the resources to feed others. But he's not given, as usual, very long to do this because the crowds follow him um, around the lake. And from the comfort he has received from God, he in turn, we read, has compassion for the crowds and begins to heal their sick. And no doubt the disciples look on in awe. They know the backstory. They know what Jesus is carrying, uh, even while he's reaching out to other people. But come to the end of the day, they've had enough. And it's their turn to say, enough already, let's send them off into town uh, to the nearest McDonald's or whatever. Perhaps they thought they were helping Jesus, perhaps they thought they were caring for him, or perhaps they just thought they were showing common sense and concern for the crowds. But I love the way actually Jesus sort of neatly turns the tables on them and teases them almost, you give them something to eat. And uh, now, of course, they backpedal very fast. They lose all their uh, bravado. And they say, well, we've got nothing here but, oh, five loaves and two fish. No, we don't even get a mention in this gospel of any little boy uh, who comes up in John's gospel. But no, here it's the disciples. But um, And actually, the church today, and this is from Palestine, the stole, uh, they still honor the story. And they love the story of the loaves and fishes. But for some reason, the loaves have become four. I think 
think it's something to do with the four Gospels, or it's all got tied up together. But they still have the loaves and fishes. It's a very powerful uh, symbol there. So surely the disciples think this will be our let-out clause. We can't possibly do anything with you know, just some, some rolls and a couple of, couple of dried fish, as they probably were. But Jesus takes control of that situation and gives it into God's hands. And of course, we know the result when he prays and when he gives that whole situation to God in front of everybody. Um, there's abundant and extravagant and overflowing provision of all that was needed. And even with leftovers uh, for 12 basketfuls, that wonderful abundance of God and the symbol of 12, uh, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel, there is always enough and more than enough. All ate and were filled, about 5,000 men we read, besides women and children. One of my uh, favourite books about the behind-the-scenes stories of women in the scriptures has actually taken that phrase as the name, and it's called just that, not counting women and children. And then it unpacks um, some of those women and children. Because Jesus is uh, showing here a God who does have a concern for all, for the hungry, the sick, men, women, and children. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. In Christ, there is no discrimination of gender, class, or race. In Christ, the poor are blessed. The simple receive truth hidden from the wise. And perhaps that is the lesson we have to constantly stand up for in our world, which so easily at the moment is tending to narrow in and to focus in on self-preservation and to clutch and to grasp, to hold on to what we've got, even if it's only the toilet paper. It's when, on the other hand, that we're willing to share and to give away and to include and to reach out and to trust, an enormous trust, that we find that God honours that trust and does indeed provide enough for all and some left over for good measure. We can't outgive God. And I think that is a message to, it takes courage to trust in at this time. In an election year when our country is struggling with COVID-related recession and job retrenchments and uncertainty about the future, how will we manage our borders and self-isolation as a country? How do we protect, but how do we also um, hope that we can actually extend and open up uh, again as a country? And I'm dealing just at the moment with the second uh, funeral that I've been doing where half the family are in Australia and not able to be here. And it's just so hard uh, for someone who's lost their mother, um, grandparents, um, that we're trying to do it. And yes, we're live streaming and doing all those things, but of course it's just not, not the same. So part of the challenge to us as people of faith is even when times are tough and uncertain to still have that trust in God's provision, in God's making a way, and God's life-giving intent, and to try to be part of that and to share that with others in very down-to-earth ways. Someone said, all that separates and injures and destroys is finally overcome by all that unites and heals and creates. And we want to be on that side of uniting and healing and creating. 
And I was pleased to, to read about on stuff yesterday about a woman here in Christchurch, I think she was called Amy, who has a uh, rental property and which she had let to a family from the Philippines. But they had gone back uh, before lockdown for a family event or whatever they needed to be uh, back there in the Philippines and then, of course, got stuck uh, with lockdown and all that's happened. And uh, she um, obviously is missing out on rent but was, was really trying hard to, to help that family, acknowledging that they were trying to pay rent uh, but still had to live and that they were caught in a situation not of their choosing. And I loved the way that it was reported there that they were both from the same church and that uh, she was really trying to to help, and she was the one who was out of pocket, if you like, uh, but actually was also trying to help that family. And it was just acknowledged um, that she, you know she was willing to count the cost of that. And that so often is the case. Uh, we often say there's no such thing as a free lunch and we look for the advantages and things. And yet in God's kingdom or economy there is because the cost so often is borne by God and God then provides in ways uh, that often we are just so surprised by. Thinking of our, our first lesson today too, the first reading from uh, Genesis, Jacob, I think, had that lesson to learn, and he learned it in a very hard way, um, that amazing encounter with what? An angel, with God, um, an encounter which ended up giving him a new name and a new identity. It was pivotal within his life and a new character, actually, to live into and a new role it would be as leader of God's people for the next stage. Uh, but I think, it, as we heard, it left him scarred. It left him with a permanent reminder of his woundedness. And someone, we were talking about this as staff the other day, and someone knows exactly what it was like to have your hip dislocated and said, I bet um, Jacob was limping. Um, he had that reminder. Because Jacob's story earlier in Genesis makes him out to be a very maverick and trickster sort of um, character. His name actually means supplanter, uh, the one who tries to get what belongs to other people. And he's always out for the main chance, and he's a fighter from the womb, we're told, with his twin brother Esau, and always looking out for number one. He put one over his brother Esau in doing him out of uh, his blessing from his father Isaac. And then he comes across always as one who tries to manipulate the situation for his own advantage. He's not a very pleasant character. Uh, he goes off and um, his mother actually sends him off to try and sort of uh, take the heat out of the relationship with his brother and uh, he uh, finds Rachel, he's very keen to marry her but actually what happens of course is that his father-in-law ends up um, manipulating him and giving him, uh, paying him back in his own kind and he ends up of course with two wives, Leah and Rachel uh, instead of just one, I always feel a bit sorry for Leah there uh, but I always think for Jacob too it was probably paid back time, no doubt he got a little more than he'd bargained for with his uh, two wives to keep him under control. And uh, of course we know 11 children in due course, at least 11. But when we come to the, just the little bit we have in our reading today, what is happening is that after 20 years in exile uh, with his wife's family, Jacob feels the call to go back home. But that also will mean meeting up with his brother Esau. And Jacob is actually terrified that Esau is going to wreak revenge on him. He would have every right to, uh, because Jacob has tried to take everything that Esau had a right to. 
So Jacob still tries to manipulate the situation and control it, and he tries a sort of an appeasement policy. He, he sends on sort of lots of presents. He's uh, quite wealthy by now. He sends on his uh, herds and flocks, and then he even sends his own family on ahead. Um, uh, perhaps he's trying to placate Esau, but he's also perhaps trying to still protect himself. And so where our reading begins, finally, Jacob is left alone. Very poignant words, really. And now he faces his own personal demons as he wrestles till daybreak. Is it a human being he wrestles with, or more than a human being? Uh, it's one whom Jacob senses eventually that he cannot control or manipulate. One who can wound him, we hear, but also one who can heal him. St. Augustine later said, Do not cast aside the one who both corrects you and encourages you, terrifies but consoles you, strikes you but heals you. So this is one who will bring Jacob blessing and a new name, Israel. The one, it means literally, the one who strives with God. And of course, that became the name of all his descendants, those 12 tribes of Israel. But yet also, um, for better or worse, has been the history of God's people through the ages, striving with God, that wrestling, um, wrestling for a blessing, if you like. God reaching out with that blessing, even when we fight. Jacob does have one last go at trying to control this being he meets in the night. Tell me your name, he says. Uh, in biblical understanding, to know someone's name is actually to have control over them, to possess them. And did you notice, while Jacob gives up his name, uh, this being will not let their name be known. That is not granted to Jacob to have that control. And so at last, Jacob realizes the mystery of the one who has finally gives him blessing. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. He realizes this is in fact the angel of the Lord, or in fact God himself. So eventually through that night of doubt and trial and suffering and struggle, Jacob comes to a place of healing of knowing that he has the chance of a new beginning and a new name with God. But I think his healing is actually only finally complete when we actually come to the next chapter. And what happens in the next chapter is that we see the meeting of Jacob and Esau. And amazingly enough to Jacob, Esau runs to meet him and embraces him and falls on his neck and kisses him and they both weep. Does that remind you of the prodigal son story? Can you hear Jesus picking up those very same images uh, of the forgiving father welcoming home the prodigal son? And of course, later in Genesis, there'll be that whole story yet again of Joseph and his brothers and all those things where it falls apart. And then that amazing forgiveness shown by Joseph. Um, me, uh, I've got three siblings. So I'm just really glad the Bible has lots of stuff about sibling rivalry. Uh, and um, it's not always easy, is it, in families? But Jacob says a wonderful thing, actually, in response to his brother Esau. Truly, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. 
and that is really what he thought he saw in that night uh, of seeing the face of God. And now he says to Esau, his brother, the brother he struggled with all his life, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. I wonder, don't you long to be able to say that to someone perhaps with whom you've struggled or fallen out, or someone with whom you've always had a tricky relationship, uh, as is so often within siblings and within families. And the courage, of course, is to say it before it's too late. To see your face is to see the face of God. Or sometimes, um, if they're no longer with us, to be able to say it to God in prayer for that person, uh, to ask Jesus to be the bridge builder in those relationships. Don't you long, too, for that to be said at a bigger level uh, by the warring factions and any of the multiplicity of conflicts and divisions in our world? Truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. I'm reminded um, of some words of, of Victor Hugo in Les, Les Miserables, and probably we know it uh, best of all uh, from the from the show, and it actually forms part of the final song of the show, and it might come into your mind, to love another person is to see the face of God. To love another person is to see the face of God. And so if you know that song, or you might like to Google it later on, um, I hope it becomes an earworm. It's a good um, Monday earworm, isn't it? Uh, because of course we know that it has to start with each one of us. And let's think of those words as we share the peace today. To love another person is to see the face of God. And we think of those words too as we come later on to communion and we share bread and wine together. And the way Matthew sets us out in his gospel, he uses the very same images that we use that were used by Jesus at the Last Supper and that we still use today in communion. So in the gospel, Jesus takes the five loaves and two fish. Jesus looks up to heaven. Jesus blesses and breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples. It's exactly the same four words that we always use in communion. Take, bless, break, and give. And then the disciples give to the crowds. That's the next stage, isn't it? So what we receive together here, we're then called to pass on and to give and to share out. Thanks be to God who provides food and love in abundance that we might share it with others. I want to um, end just with a little poem that uh, Becky actually put on our um, Livestreams family Facebook page this week. And it's written by a poet friend of yours, Gideon, never know, Huff. I look at it and I thought H-E-U-G-H. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. Um, but he's a lovely, he's quite a young guy, isn't he? A um, young poet. And I think this sums up actually pretty well what Jacob learnt in that nice encounter with God and what the disciples learned from Jesus. It goes like this. Love is strong because it is vulnerable. It overcomes because it serves. And it is powerful because it rejects power. Love doesn't climb ladders to get ahead. It gets to work at ground level. Love doesn't pursue sunlight. It sets up camp in the dark night of the soul and builds a fire. Love doesn't dominate, segregate or accumulate. It would rather get nailed to a cross in a posture of inclusion, then take up a sword to conquer. 
Love wins because it is willing to lose. Amen.